Welcome to Meet, Act, and Part. A Masonic podcast hosted by Midnight Freemasons Greg Knott, Darren Larners, Todd Creason, and Bill Hosler. The views, opinions and experiences that are expressed by the hosts or guests as individual Freemasons do not reflect the official position of any Grand Lodge, appendant body, or Masonic authority to which the hosts or guests belong. And now on with the show. Welcome, everybody, to another exciting episode of Meet, Act, and Part. This is episode number 30. Tonight, we're going to talk about Lodge culture. But first, let's introduce ourselves. I am one of your co-hosts, and my name is Greg Knott. Hi, I'm Darren Laners. I'm Bill Hostler. And our special guest tonight is Mike Arce. And our topic is, as I mentioned, Lodge culture. But I'm going to have Mike Give a little bit of his bio, some Mike, some of your uh, Masonic background. But first, let me just give you a, a warm welcome on this cold day in February across America. Welcome, Mike. Thank you very much, brothers. And thanks for having me on. And uh, warm fraternal greetings from icy upstate New York. It's a pleasure to be on the program. I've listened to Meet Act and Part for quite some time. I actually listen every morning when I go for a run with my dog and I just find it's a it's a great companion as I'm out there thinking and hoping for the sun to come up. My Masonic bio, I am the junior warden of Mount Vernon Lodge number three in Albany, New York. I was a regular contributor to the Midnight Freemasons, but have kind of fallen to the somewhat regular contributor role for the group and used a lot of the experience that I had in creating content professionally and also Masonically to start Craftsman Online, which is a, gr- a working group of brothers here in New York, and we're trying to help create value in the Masonic experience for Masons here in New York State. Well, that's that's great, and I, I think your efforts there that you just mentioned really kind of dovetail into Lodge culture, because, uh, and we'll, we'll get into what Lodge culture is and, uh, and those kinds of things, but it, it, it seems like they kind of go hand in hand. So let's stick with the Lodge culture piece for a minute. I'll just give a little bit about what what I when I think of lodge culture and uh, and maybe we describe culture in general and you know when you think of culture it's uh, it could be groups of people groups of ethnicities uh, it could be uh, work culture it could be your ball team it could be anything where where I I would consider a group of people are together on a somewhat regular basis or more and it forms how they interact with one another. And so that's some of the stuff we're going to explore. What I'm going to do is uh, I'm going to ask Darren to kind of start off with our questions tonight because we were talking about this topic and he delved into a little bit. So, Darren, let me pass it to you and we'll begin digging in. I was actually had been talking with Mike and uh, looking to try to get Mike on the program. And Mike had suggested he come on and he talk about lodge culture. I think the first question we need to ask is what is lodge culture? And I think Greg, you kind of hit uh, around what lodge culture is. I think it is basically the way in which your lodge members interact with each other and as a whole. So you can have a lodge culture that is toxic 
especially if your members don't see eye to eye and the meetings that you have usually devolve into argument. You can have lodge culture where uh, it's productive, where all of your lodge members are working towards a common goal and there's harmony. And you can probably have a mix of anywhere in between. And that's my definition of lodge culture. I'll ask Mike. Uh, Mike, how would you define lodge culture? Well, I really like the way that Greg kind of took it from the 30,000 foot level as to what culture is. Yeah, I was listening to one of the past episodes for Mean Atten Park, where you had a former MBA candidate who was on talking about leadership and management and the difference between the two. And, and I really found my ears just perking up and listening to that. And I'm like, oh, get to culture, get to culture, because I believe that it that it is part of that. Uh, I'm an MBA candidate as well. I'm going to SUNY Empire State College here in New York for a healthcare leadership uh, MBA program. And for me, culture is, you know, my personal definition of it is it's it's basically the the behaviors, the attitude, the beliefs, kind of the value system that exists uh, in any group or organization. And as we tend to look at our lodges and you start looking at the, the members who are in there, for a lot of us, we, we refer to each other as brothers because we have a deeper bond, but it is a lot like family. So I think, Darren, you hit it right on the head. There is a good culture, and on the opposite, there can also be a bad culture. I think there's a third category as well, and that's the, well, I don't know if we have a culture culture, which if you're lacking it, guess what? That's what it is. And this is a topic that as a Midnight Freemason, I have tried to write an article or a thought piece about this at least five times I've started and tried to get into it. And it really started from one of those parking lot discussions I had with a master uh, in my uh, jurisdiction after a meeting. And I had given a presentation and he was like, Michael, you know, you did a great job speaking. Is there any way that I could get you to affiliate with my lodge here? And I his name was Michael as well. And I was like, you know, I got a tremendous amount of respect for what you're trying to do here. But, you know, I'm stretched thin as far as time goes. And I'm not really the guy that you need. And he's like, well, I'm trying to improve our lodge culture. And we started to have a real kind of heart-to-heart talk about that. And the challenge that I think lodges that run into when they see that they're at that warning track of we're getting to a bad culture, where if your lodge is like a grape, it's starting to dry up on the vine and kind of get raisiny. He has a lot of older members in his lodge. And the problem is when it comes to bringing in anyone into his lodge under the age of 50, which they consider a young guy, they see these older brothers and they are kind of turned off to that in Freemasonry. They don't understand that, you know, with age comes wisdom and experience and knowledge and that a good lodge has a good diverse mix of that. On the other hand, you could have a lodge, and I'm sure we can all think of one in our jurisdiction or maybe one that we visited, where you have a group of not only like-minded gentlemen, but men that tend to be about the same age or in kind of the same situation in life. Either they're fathers, working professionals, have been married for a while, don't have children, but they've all kind of reached that same sameness in their point in life. And so there's that unique bond that they share on top of being a Freemason where, hey, I want to go hang out with so-and-so because they understand a lot of the same things that I'm going through in life. Like, for example, I can't stay out very late because I have a job I have to go to tomorrow morning. So I would kind of like it if our Masonic meetings ended by nine o'clock and I got home by 930. Those are sometimes those are the unspoken things that that happen in a lodge culture. So on a basic level, that 
I think is is what uh, a culture is. Now, what it can do on top of that is the real magical part of it. And that's when it comes to the different members and the different parts of it. And we had talked about once you build up a culture and it's bringing in certain guys so that we can have this, take this lodge to where we want it to be as a group or as an organization. So we have an officer line, we have, you know, leadership openings, we have vacancies that we're looking to fill with either people who are established or the right kind of person who can step in and is willing to learn that role. That's when you start talking about building culture by by adding people. I don't want to take up the whole time talking, but the other part of of culture that I like to compare it to easily for a lot of guys is to use, I'm sorry, the sports analogy. And I'm a huge football fan. And I think we just recently saw a few weeks ago in the Super Bowl, what can happen when you take a star player from a winning organization and put him on another team, him bringing that mindset. And in this case, it would be Tom Brady and the values and the beliefs and the attitudes that he does, that he can contribute to a team that was nowhere near the playoffs last year, they become a Super Bowl winner. And it's very obvious to anybody that's even a casual person watching the Super Bowl that you could tell, hey, Tom Brady, of course, he's going to go to a team and make them better. So I think that that's how we, if we look at culture in that way, it becomes much simpler to identify and then recognize where the chances are to improve. Mike, you touched on something I think is interesting and in that definition of culture. When you're talking about introducing new people into that culture, part of what you were saying earlier was maybe there's a lodge where everybody's about the same age and, you know, they're raising kids or about getting to that stage and all just kind of agree on it, maybe almost to a groupthink kind of culture. Today in general society, I my observation is most people try to find people and topics and maybe news, I won't get too deep into that, that reaffirm their own beliefs and they tend to only associate with those kind of same people. But where I see the real value of Freemasonry, one of our great values is the ability to bring in somebody that is different than yourself or perhaps others. And I think about the strength that that diversity, different group or different uh, opinions, uh, different background, different set of experiences, what that introduces into a culture. And to me, it strengthens it. But I guess, how do you, how does a lodge stay adaptable to be open-minded enough to say, look, maybe we do need somebody that's not just like us. And that could be age. It could be a whole different set of things. But how do you start to work on that to, as a group to, to, to recognize that, like, look, we, we, we need to expand our horizons here and, and help ourselves grow, not just in numbers, but in, in our experiences. How, how do you go about that as a lodge how does that person that maybe is different that, you know, in age or whatever, as they're the new person coming into the lodge, how do they assimilate in? What's the responsibility of the lodge members to work them in, et cetera? I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. Sure. That's a great question. And peeling it back, this is how I would answer it. I think in any organization is that you always have that core group of, of leaders. And they could be past leaders or they could be people in the position or growing into it. But you know, there's this this core group of, in our situation, it would be this, this core group of guys, right? And they're going to be the primary drivers of how 
this organization is going to operate, this team is going to operate. So I'll use myself as an example. I'm actually on my third Masonic Lodge. <laughs> Thankfully, there's 17 in this district, so I'm not trying to go through all of them, but I'm on my third um, Masonic Lodge. And my first lodge was a good fit for me because I didn't know anything about Freemasonry. It will always be my mother lodge. It's where I was raised. But what led me to leaving the lodge were personality different for one. And the second part was I was looking for something that the lodge couldn't provide. And going through the leadership positions, uh, the chairs, uh, I realized that one of my favorite quotes to live by is one person can make a difference and everybody should try. And that by staying in that line and wanting to inject Masonic education into that lodge, that just wasn't a part of the culture of that lodge. They didn't have that in their meetings. And really, the members weren't coming for that. They were coming for other things. So I would be swimming against the current in that example. And I decided to look elsewhere. So I landed at a lodge that's uh, closer to where uh, I live in Troy, New York. And a lot of guys in that lodge were all about the same age. They're in our 30s and 40s. So we were a bit of a younger lodge. And the other interesting thing is that this lodge's particular makeup was mainly we were all affiliates. There was only one or two of us that were that are in that lodge that were actually raised by that lodge. The rest of us just came there. And we were all kind of looking for the same thing. We wanted Masonic education and we wanted an opportunity to uh, contribute beyond just attending meetings. And what led me to leave that lodge was the fact that when I started getting into the leadership roles, I realized that, again, the idea that I had for kind of adding structure, and this lodge had a progressive line, like many do, and the incoming master and the outgoing master, there wasn't really a synergy, and I know that's a buzzword that people hate, but the, the killer word for me that it was always looked at as, well, this is this brother's year to be master. So the lodge was like the ocean. The tide would go in, the tide would go out. We really didn't really know what was going to happen year after year. And if you brought in guys during a good year, you would really hope that the next master that came in would institute some of those same things that excited those guys to become a member of your lodge. And eventually I sought a lodge that had a little bit more of the history and Masonic education that I was looking for. And I landed at Mount Vernon. And what I've learned through these three years or these three lodges and over the six years that I've been a Mason is this. It's it's just the very simple truth is that every lodge is building. That's the uniqueness of Freemasonry is that even if you have that core group of guys who've been doing the same thing for 10 or 15 years, they still need someone to come in underneath them to help eventually take over the reins of the leadership of the lodge. So I guess a warning or a, a, a sign that you could look for is where are you in that transition point? And when you talk about having a diversity of thought and different types of members in there, yes, we, we do that through our investigation process. Obviously, if we know that you know a gentleman is coming to show an interest in joining our lodge and he would be a better fit somewhere else, I think most of us would probably encourage him to take that other direction. But if he would be a good fit for our lodge, we're going to fight like heck for him. We're going to make sure that he has a strong and a favorable impression of what we're about and also what the expectation is for when he becomes a member of the thing that he does not know yet that he's about to obligate himself to. So I, I, I hope that answered your question in that I, I feel that when looking at 
adding new members. It's it's almost like in our minds, we're casting roles. We're looking for certain characteristics and certain personality types that are going to work and play well with the others. Darren, you've seen quite a few guys come and go. Darren and I are in the same lodges in here in Illinois. And Darren, do you think some of them left because the culture wasn't what they expected? They just didn't fit into the culture? Uh, reflect a little bit on you know just our own experiences based on what uh, Mike was talking about. To answer your question, Greg, I think that's the question that a lot of lodges want to try to answer. Why are we raising men as master masons only to see them never to return to lodge? And I think it is uh, probably a little bit of maybe culture. Maybe there were some personality differences and instead of you know addressing those with the racial master or the officers of the lodge they found it easier just not to return to lodge maybe it's uh, as we say due to them not getting anything for uh, their money meaning that the argument that we always say is that men don't want to go to stated meetings just to read minutes and pay the bills that they go to stated meetings, I think, for obviously the camaraderie and uh, the interaction with the other members of the lodge. But I also think they go to learn something or to help to try to improve themselves. And that's why we've been, uh, all of us I know, have stressed uh, education and lodges because I feel that we need to educate our members. We need to give them the tools that they need to succeed not only in Freemasonry but in life. And I think in doing education we can do that. So I think it's it's probably a, a more complex answer than, than uh, just it being all about lodge culture. But I think that culture probably does have something to do with it. So the, the other thing I could mention too is when it comes to building a lodge culture, that was a good question. I think there are things that we can do. I'm a part of the North Star group here and the North Star is something that uh, the Grand Lodge of New York State started to kind of, as I like to describe it, we're like the sorting hat and Harry Potter for would-be interested Masons. And that's where you find out culture real fast because when you're trying to help a guy find a lodge in your jurisdiction that would be a good fit for him. You're like, oh, you like to drink beer and watch NASCAR races. Oh, cool. You would love this lodge because that's what these guys do. You want to be a part of a lodge that, you know, and I think we naturally all kind of default to that. And that's kind of an easy way to, to talk about building a lodge culture. And it's a good starting point. So it's like, what is your lodge kind of known for? And that's what your culture is. That's a, that's a good introspective way of evaluating it. Yeah, that's very interesting. Bill, what are your thoughts on, on culture and things that you've seen in Texas and Oklahoma and elsewhere? It's kind of interesting. You know, each, each part of the country I've noticed in a lodge is different. You know, I belong to three different lodges in three different states, and I've visited other lodges in other places. And each one of them, although on the local level, are unique, but it's just like an example that's running through my mind is just like the master's hat. You know, in England, obviously, when I was over there, the master doesn't wear a hat, and they think we're weird for doing it. But from what I understand, like in Massachusetts, they wear a tricorner hat like they did during the Revolution. And I guess like where Michael's from in New York, they wear a top hat, and that's optional anywhere. But 
And it was funny, and that was pretty much when I was master in Indiana. I wore what we called the Jughead hat, that kind of little blue hat you see in all the McCoy and the other catalogs and such as that. And down here in Oklahoma and Texas, everybody wears a cowboy hat. And it's just to me right there that shows that there's a difference in culture. And some of the words pronounced in lodges, you know, if I were to pronounce the lodge, some of the words like they do. In Indiana, they definitely correct me down here because it's definitely different. But I think that's funny. But earlier you was asking about the differences between different lodges. And I think that each one, they all, all lodges want to grow. It's just on the outside, they all want to grow because they all want to perpetuate and keep going. And that's what they say they want. But it's the difference between saying they want to do something versus actually wanting to do something. And I'm, I'm not going to try to pick on any particular lodge, but just from my experience. The lodge that I belong to in Texas, in Frisco, Lebanon 837, about 10 years ago, they were nearly ready to shut their doors. They rarely had hardly anybody to come in. They were really struggling just to keep enough members to make a quorum. And they come to a decision. We have to change. We want to change we need to do this. We need to attract new members. And so they started, you know, they cleaned up their building. They started looking at what the younger people wanted. Besides education, which they do do on occasion, but they've tried to be a little less, well, we've always done it this way. They tried to try new things. And now that lodge, on a given night, before COVID, obviously, would bring in 30 or 40 brethren for just a stated meeting. Now, on the other hand, I moved up here to Oklahoma to this little town called Ardmore, 30 miles from the Texas border. And I visited here, and they barely are keeping the doors open. They can't even afford the insurance on their building in here in Tornado Alley. They're that, and the building is ready to fall down. They've had some major structural issues. And the master told me that he wanted this built, you know, to perpetuate and change. I said, well, I said, I've helped other lodges change, and I know what to do. If you guys are really wanting to change, I'll help you. We'll go through it. We'll make this lodge great. Well, they were all for it, they said. Well, we started the process. We started adding, like, a website. We started adding social media. We started to do different things. And within a month, they went back to their old ways. They just kind of wanted to go back to the thing. They didn't want to have anything to do with the new ways anymore. And so I haven't been back there in three years. And I don't think they're doing that well, to be perfectly honest. And so just to me, it just seems like if you know, lodge culture is lodge culture, if a bunch of men want to perpetuate and keep going, they're going to have to open up their culture a little bit to diversity and to open it up to other people. I know it's hard, but it's if they truly want to continue on, that's what they're going to have to do. I mean, they can't be like the Mean Girls click in the, in the movies. They have to be inclusive to all young brethren or even visiting brethren who come to meet them. That's just kind of the way I see it, and I hate to say it, but it's the truth. I know Mike had started to talk about this a little, but I'd like to kind of go around the horn to talk about how one can build and create a culture. And since Bill mentioned some things regarding how he tried to help change the culture at the lodge in his hometown there in Oklahoma, I'm going to ask him to begin. Certain things is we started to to have dinner they they would have dinner on occasion and they never let anybody know what was going on they said that they had a, a phone list 
And I asked several times to be put on the phone list to know when meetings were, when they were going to do degree work and stuff. And oh yeah, I give them my telephone number several times and I never got a call. And I thought, you know, here I am willing to help and I want to bring other people in. And there were several other people who wanted to do this too. And they never called us. They just called the usual suspects and the same people has been, you know, there for decades. And so I think you have to create communication links. We have in Lebanon, we have social media, we have an email list, we also call each other, we email each other. I mean, we're down to everything but smoke signals is the way we do it. We used to have an, an app where we could talk to each other in real time, but since the company folded, we no longer have that. We're still looking for an active replacement. We haven't come up with one yet. But I think you need to have lots of communications. You need to celebrate each other's achievements. You know, if a brother gets a promotion at work, a brother's birthday, his kid's birthdays, if he gets married. And on the other hand, if something bad happens to his family, if his mother-in-law has, you know, issues, maybe go up, see if they can do anything for the family. If one of his kids needs something, you know, whether she needs shoes or whether they need something to go to school, try to help them with that. Uh, One of the brothers in that lodge in Texas, his house was struck by lightning. And it caught on fire. And the family was, I'm not going to say destitute because they weren't, but obviously it was a deep burden for them. And the lodge got together. They started a GoFundMe fund. And we put it on our social media. We posted it around various districts in Texas and such. And we asked for, I think it was $5,000 to help this, this family, this brother. Well, at the end, we ended up raising $35,000 for this brother and his family. And it's just little things like that that makes you want to be along to something that makes you feel good, that makes you glad that you're a member, that makes you want to make sure you pay your dues every year. And something that you and your family look forward to. You know, Oh, we're going to have something at the lodge this weekend. Hey, we're going to have a picnic on Saturday. Oh, that's great. I mean, your kids, mom, dad, can we have to go back to the lodge? I want to see my friends. You got to have stuff like that. And the fact that it works out the way you hope it will, maybe your boy will join Malay as he gets old enough. Your daughters might join Job's Daughters or Rainbow girls and it just kind of helped perpetuate and it's going to keep that's the biggest thing but you have to build a camaraderie you have to build love i guess it's probably the best way to put it you got to build a, a loving relationship between the members of your lodge their families their kids that's really what you got to do and just maintain contact make, make sure that everybody's you know in touch with each other that and everybody's happy they don't need anything make it like a true family just like we were saying mike was saying a little bit ago that you know we call it a brotherhood because it's deeper than just friendship let's prove it make sure your lodge knows that you feel like they're your brother and that their wives are your sisters make every lodge event a family reunion. And I think that's the kind of culture that would keep people coming and make people dying to want to join. Bill gives a very practical, and he beautifully summarized it. And what I would sit down in the business world and say, okay, this is how we're going to fix your brand, or we're going to adjust your culture, or, or we're going to uh, try to build something. He, he hit it right on the head with the engagement part. The first part in solving a problem is identifying that there is a problem. And I take it a step beyond what you'll hear in you know those those programs and also say hey the good news is if you're part of the problem you're also part of the solution so positive intent not all culture is bad some of the things could just be 
like, hey, we want to add this to our lodge. We want to try this. If we have guys that are showing an interest in this, let's see if we can do that. Like not all culture changes is because we're shifting from bad to good. Maybe we're just trying to take good and make it a little bit better. If you start reading books on this and, and leadership and management, you're going to start hearing concepts like you need an agent of change. So as you've addressed in previous episodes, a vision statement, a values proposition, those are always helpful. Who we are, what do we stand for? What do we want to do? Who are the guys that are going to help bring this idea to reality? That's another key thing. And as Bill kind of put it simply, in my lodge now, Mount Vernon number three, we're building a culture. We are trying to rebuild our lodge. We barely, sometimes now with COVID restrictions in New York, we can only have 10 guys in the room when we're opening our lodges uh, once a month. And, you know, we joke about it. We're like, well, we're lucky. We barely would have 10 guys here normally, just enough to fill the chair. So when we uh, have an interested gentleman that is interested in petitioning our lodge, that's actually a selling point for us. We say, hey, do you want to be a part of something? Do you like the idea of being a builder, being a part of a team? and creating something, does that idea excite you? Cool, because that's what we're about right now. Yeah, we're gonna deliver world-class ritual to you and we're gonna partner with other lodges to kind of fill in in some of the areas that we need help in. And yes, Masonic education and history is something that we value here as well, but you've come to this big room and there's not a lot of guys in here, but you're gonna be part of something special. You're gonna help us build something. So I think that's another thing that you wanna examine as well. If you're If you're at that stage where you're trying to relaunch your lodge or rebuild your lodge is you want to find the right guys that have that mindset. If a guy's coming in and wants to be a part of a team that's going to be an instant winner, this might not be the best long-term solution for him. And it's our job to help him find a lodge that's going to offer that. The uh, other night I listened to a, a podcast or a, no, it was actually a kind of a webinar on Facebook, and and sorry, I don't remember the group that put it on, but the topic was traditional observance lodges, and there was a speaker from Lexington, Kentucky, Lexington number one, and he said something that struck me, and I think fits right in with where we're going with some of this, and he said that that lodge at one time had probably more than 700 members, maybe more than that, and they were they were down to 250 or whatever the number was, but he actually said they were doing that deliberately, and he may also made a point that they were transitioning to this traditional observance model, and they were being very deliberate about it and said it was probably going to happen over a 10-year period of time, and they knew they would be better off as a smaller lodge. So as natural attrition uh, occurred through people leaving or passing away or whatever, they weren't all up in arms about it. They were actually wanting to be smaller to, I think, enhance the experience and things, but they were being very deliberate. And I thought what was unique was the time frame that they had set forth to make this transition and were being very deliberate about it. And so we're trying to change everything overnight. They still had some of the old things they were doing, but yet they were introducing, uh, sounded like a piece at a time, this this move towards, the for their sake, the traditional observance model. And again, the TO model isn't for every lodge, but what what struck me was they were very deliberately changing that culture and we're doing it in such a speed that it wasn't overnight, but they were doing a piece and then it stuck and then another piece and it stuck, et cetera, so that the accumulation of it was where they wanted to go. 
And I just thought that was very insightful for uh, any group, let alone a Masonic Lodge, to be that far out in, in their thinking and be committed to, to doing that change. Yeah, a small lodge like that is actually fairly common outside the United States. England, as a matter of fact, that's their normal way of doing things. They, if, if a lodge gets over 35 members, they tend to try to take those additional members and have them create another lodge. Just because they feel like that at each lodge is it should be interpersonal, that everyone should know each other and that each person should be friendly with each other and know each each brother by name. That's So it's not that uncommon of a thing. And I think last time I knew Lodge Retrivian, you know, Chris Hodap's lodge in um, Indianapolis was still that way. That was purposely built on that premise too you know, as part of the European concept. So it's, it's really, it's not that unusual of a thing. It's just that as Dwight Smith always said, you know, everything here in America is bigger and better and we have to keep doing it bigger and better. So honestly, it's not that bad of an idea really yeah and just to follow up uh with what you're saying bill and it transitions perfectly to uh if it's possible to change a lodge's culture one of the things that is interesting here in illinois is on our uh, mori system i think it's called groupable i believe there's for the grand lodge of illinois document section that i discovered and within that document section they have every lodge a copy of every lodge in illinois bylaws and just on a lark i looked at uh, not only my lodge's bylaws uh, homer lodge's bylaws but also looked at some of the newer lodges bylaws case in point the lodge that rj created uh, along with some other brethren up in the or northeastern, I guess, suburbs of Chicago, Spayus Novum. And they have in their bylaws a limit of how many members that they will have as members of the lodge at one time. Not only that, they have uh, set their dues very high, higher than I would say the average lodge here in Illinois. And I think they've done this in order to A, make sure that the people that join their lodge are committed to the lodge's vision of festive boards, education, and then also to help perpetuate that lodge and uh, allow them to not only financially support themselves, and but support those activities to which they've committed in their bylaws. So I think that uh, it's unique to, but not uncommon to kind of see this concept of the uh, traditional observance or the European concept lodge limiting the amount of members. And uh, maybe it's something that other lodges should explore. I think changing a lodge's culture, I think first part, there has to be a willingness. And uh, I think as Mike and others indicated, identifying the issues and, and all of that. I listened the other night, the Grand Lodge of Illinois had a, a town hall meeting that they had online and recorded, and I was listening to part of it. And of course, you always talk about numbers of, of members and, and that. And Illinois has about 450 lodges left, and there's about 30 of those or more are on the verge of either disappearing or merging. And I thought about that in the context of can you change a lodge's culture? In many cases, probably not. And of course, you need a, a, a nucleus of, of people to make things go. But it just seemed to me, it's like, well, there's 30 going, and there's probably who knows how many more on the bubble now with COVID and basically lack of activity for more than a year. Can you come in and do that? And so 
I would actually pose another question, and and I've been one, and and Darren's been part of it, and I know Bill's. It, obviously, he's already talked about being part of it. And Mike, can you personally sustain the energy that is needed to help be that catalyst for a lodge to change? I love doing startup stuff. I, I think I miss my calling probably as a startup entrepreneur on things, but because I can come in and, and quickly, uh, like some of the rest of you indicate, you know, I know what to do. I can help you figure it out and carry probably a big load of the work for an extended period of time. But I found after a while, I start to run out of energy. And, uh, if you don't have more than just one or two people helping carrying that load, it's going to be awful tough to change the culture or to save a lodge, for lack of a better word, to keep it going. Because And there's people, they're, they're not being obstacles, and they're more willing to show up and tag along. But unless you've got a group of doers or leaders or whatever word you want to use, it's hard to sustain that over time. Absolutely. I don't think that that's common to any jurisdiction or area of the country, what's happening with masonry, the consolidation. While you were sharing your story, I was thinking of two lodges in my area that share the same building. You have one that has predominantly older members and a pretty nice sized treasury, and the other that has relatively younger members and needs money. They meet on the same week, but just different nights of the week. And it's only going to be a matter of time, right, before one is going to need the other and they're going to reach out and it's like, oh, this will be interesting to see how these two come together and find that, uh, find each other and, and hopefully find a solution. Not to put any pressure on the guy that gets to wear the hat in the room, but I think that's, for me, the common denominator is the master's chair. The Freemasonry is unique, unlike other organizations, startup companies, Fortune 500 companies, family-run businesses. I was taking a sip of a Sierra Nevada beer and I made me think about Freemasonry. And Sierra Nevada, their, their cans say, family-owned, operated, and often argued over. And I got a real kick out of that one. Where I think that in Freemasonry, it's unique because the worshipful master has the gavel of authority. And if you have a good master, you could be having a great year. And of course, good is a, is a relative term. Like you, we're all going to find our own way to kind of describe that. But we know when we have a good year and somewhat of an off year. What's also unique in Freemasonry is that you have the council for the master to reach out to, which would be the past masters that are there to advise and give him the support that he needs. But there's also that other X factor, which is the actual lodge members. And I know I'm speaking to a group of past masters of I've heard you guys speak about this before, and I'm sure you're nodding and you're thinking of things that you would have brought up to Lodge, but you didn't because you knew that you wouldn't have had the votes or the support even to make it happen. Or great ideas that were suggested, but the execution just fell a little short because there was no other hands to help lift the heavy load of that. And I think that that's the, the work of the master. Not to put any pressure on it, but if you're going to invest the time to go through the chair, and if this is your leadership experience and your quote-unquote you know college of learning is to go through and learn the ritual, learn the parts, but also learn what's expected to you to get to that part where you get the master's word. I think it's imperative that you look at it as in, okay, when it's my time, when it's my term, this is the thing that I want to bring to the lodge to improve it. Here's the idea or just the thing that we're going to do. And it's important that I also look to the guy behind me and the guy behind him to see what their thing is that they want to bring in. And is there a way that we could kind of blend these three things together so that there's an even cycle so that the, this is how we can get the wheels of change to serve in a lodge because otherwise it's going to go sporadically from one year to the next year 
and there's just no consistency and it kind of falls off to the shoulder. I think that that continuity piece is just vital. I was, I'm in another group and I was thinking about that. I'm second VP of the Masonic Society. And so I'm, you know, a couple years or a couple, four years actually behind because we do two year terms and talking to the guys ahead of me and, and putting together a plan that then transcends not only them, but me, but then as you indicate, Mike, the people behind me, because that the, the stopping and starting, I think is part of what is, is a weak spot, not just for masonry, but any organization, but especially us, or uh, like you say, the master gets all energized and, you know, has the one year and then the senior warden either has different plans or doesn't execute the remainder of the plan. And so you, the stopping and starting, I think, doesn't help the lodge culture. Bill, when you were talking about the lodge there in Oklahoma that you kind of said, look, I'm willing to help do some work. Don't you think they probably suffered from a little bit of that of the master, even if you had one that was energetic and doing things, maybe the people behind them just weren't, just weren't ready. Yeah. And I think it was like one particular person. I'm not going to rule them out or call them out on, on the air, but yeah, there was a lot of negative thoughts. I know was part of that too. And, and the usual, we've never done it this way. And they had just had a big argument and they lost half their membership before I got there. And that was, I think, a big part of it. That, so they they were already stinging and reeling from that. You know, you was talking about startups and I really think that, you know, one person can't carry it, two people can't carry it. And the thing that I'm thinking is when you're talking that is after a while, if you can't energize more than just yourself and another person, after trying your hardest for a certain amount of time, if it's just you two still doing it, you're just going to have to put it down as a loss. I tried that with the Fort Wayne Masonic Temple when I was running it. Myself and two or three others, we tried our best for like a year and a half and Eventually, thank goodness, they finally found some people that could do it, but they just fought us tooth and nail on trying to keep that building open. It's almost like they wanted it to close. But if you can't, if you can't energize people, then maybe it's just time to let them go down. I just, I hate to say it, but maybe it's the truth. They have to want to change. Darren, I don't know if you remember, maybe it was RJ or somebody mentioned on one of our episodes that the Lodge... It's, you know, it's great having all the history, but maybe having something old just for the sake of it being old isn't enough. In other words, to Bill's point, maybe there is a life expectancy for organizations. And when when they're done, they're just done. That's okay. And you go on to another one or start a different one or change, you know, what you're doing. That's both Darren and Mike that don't, don't you think that we try to perpetuate some lodges just because of how old they are. And when maybe uh, coming back to our topic of culture, their cultures, it's just done. And things always have an endpoint. And maybe sometimes we try to inject and keep that culture or change it when it's already too far gone. Yes. To the larger point in the, the changing of the culture part, like, is it possible to change a lodge's culture? Absolutely. It's something you can start right now. You can bring an idea to a meeting. You can start talking to other brothers that you know that show an interest. And it can just start small, as others have suggested. Just a couple, maybe it's something that you do outside of Lodge. A reading group for guys that like reading Masonic books, but it's just not something that's going to have the, the bandwidth to capture the wide attention of everybody in the Lodge. I think good leaders find ways, creative ways, to inject new ideas. A friend of mine uh, he was, well, he's now a past master of his lodge in Rhode Island. And I felt bad because last year he was one of those masters that kind of had a, a pocket year thanks to COVID. 
And he had a lot of ideas that he wanted to bring into his, his lodge. One was he is the kind of guy that if he had a veteran or uh, a member that has a family member that served, he would reach out to get an American flag that had flown over the area where that person had either served or spent some time and had it shipped and presented them in, in the lodge. You know, create special moments like that. One idea that he proposed, which I'm like, oh, I'm totally stealing that when I get to be master, is he had the idea of really playing off of the beehive theme that we learn in the Master Mason degree, but starting at the EA degree with actually having brothers brew their own mead, uh, not in the lodge building, but in a place where they could do it. And then when they were finally raised, after that time had passed, celebrating the mead and using that as the launching point for the beehive analogy and a way to kind of celebrate the moment together. So there's little things that you can do to change your lodge culture. It doesn't necessarily have to always be bringing Masonic education or having speakers or presentation. It, it, we could always go back to those other things of brotherhood and helping the brothers find value in the experience. I agree with, with Mike. I think that changing Lodge culture is a lot of baby steps. Greg, to your point, there has to be more than just one individual trying to champion a change in culture. Uh, and I think Bill put it best, it's probably more than just a couple. I know we've talked about this example on the podcast before, but it just sticks in my mind. St. Joe, we had won a battle to get internet in the lodge so that we could use it not only to help cast our slides from our phones or our computers to educate the brethren during our degree lectures, but also my thought was, well, this is great. We can get some brethren up here and maybe have some watch parties, watch some movies, so on and so forth. And I brought the idea up in Lodge and everybody was supportive of it. And then <laughs> the night of the movie, it's just Greg and I watching uh, movies up in the Lodge room. It's still a good time, but came back as master the next meeting and basically told the brethren, look, if I raise an idea, if I bring up an idea and you guys are supporting it, then the expectation is, is that you're committing to it that you're going to show up i mean just don't vote for something just to vote for it i think that creating a culture yes mike it does begin with the master absolutely but you have to have a group of individuals that have the same vision and want to commit to that change in culture yeah i didn't want to leave greg hanging because he, he asked a really good question about older lodges and yeah, I'm one of those brothers that also just has deep sadness when I hear of a lodge closing its doors. Whether the I'm fortunate we have lodges in our area that are older than the country, and when I hear that they're at risk of getting to that point, it saddens me, just as if it was a newer lodge that is having a struggling problem. So stop me if you've heard this story before, where it's an older lodge that's in an, it's a building that it's owned, it's older, there's some sort of tragic event that happens, like plumbing issue, uh, the roof is leaking, uh, something, the burner for the heat goes out, uh, and they can't meet that bill. So now they have to sell the property and move. And this happened here in, in my jurisdiction. And they moved into the Shriner building and moved all their artifacts. It was very sad. The, 
the building had a ton of history as the bricks actually came from England and were floated here. Like the, the story, I'm a sucker for history and I loved hearing it. It was a very sad day to see that that uh, building eventually became a law office. But the lodge continued to have its meetings. And that was kind of the tipping point for that lodge where after they left their lost their building, they kind of lost their identity a little bit. And the culture of the brothers really had to come together to keep the lodge afloat. I mean, some of the special things that this lodge did was they would have a horseshoe tournament with a barbecue uh, every summer as kind of a fundraiser uh, for other lodges to come participate in. They were the, the lodge that would have, you know, one of the members dressed up as uh, Santa Claus and, you know, serve the neighborhood that they lived in and the kids would come for toys. They did something for St. Patrick's Day as well, which was, which was pretty special. And they weren't able to do that in their new facility. And over the course of a few years, their membership started to drop off. To the point where it really brings a tear to you, your eye when you hear or see a master on Facebook say, hey, is anybody interested in affiliating with my lodge? We'll waive the affiliation fees just if you'll come to be a part of what we're doing here on this night. So my hope is, is that if there's enough of us who see the need as leaders in Freemasonry, and when if we have the ability to offer our time or affiliate and help those struggling lodges, that we do that. And and I, I'm with you, uh, Bill. It is one of the saddest things when you see these older lodges go out of business out of no fault of their own. On the other side, yeah, there are some lodges that are sadly doomed to fail because they have not been able, for whatever reason, to make the adjustment in their lodge culture, that they became the lodge of the old dying guys, and hence the lodge became that as well. And you watch them slowly go the way of the dinosaur. And to that, I just think that that's part of the natural, honestly, attrition that's kind of happening in Freemasonry now, is where we had those lodges that there were many that met in one building, and now we're kind of getting back, condensing to fewer lodges to serve more people. And that's a sad thing when you see that go, and I feel for those brothers as well, but obviously it wasn't their fault that this happened, but it was a part of the culture that it just didn't serve for the future of the lodge. I was thinking the other day that after I think I heard the comment in the Grand Lodge Town Hall about the ones that can merge, it always makes me sad to see a lodge merge for a couple of reasons. One is, of course, the history. You do lose it. And I'm like you, Mike, I'm a sucker for the history. The other part is I think of all the people that will never be Freemasons because that their area geographically doesn't have a lodge anymore. So they don't even think to go join because there's nothing to join. So it's sort of a, a lost opportunity, I think, in the future as well. So, heck, I'm in four lodges because that's just me and a whole bunch of other stuff because I like to see it uh, keep going and I'm willing to be one of the workers that does some of the effort on stuff. Why don't we kind of wrap up our discussion here on lodge culture. Let me just summarize a few of the things I heard, and then I'm going to ask Bill and Mike to kind of give their closing comments, and we'll wrap it up. But we defined what lodge culture was. We talked about it in the context of each of our experiences in different types of lodges. We talked about maybe how you start to institute change of culture, what that culture change may look like in terms of either adding people or adding programs or adding things to do. We talked some about when the change just isn't possible because maybe you don't have the nucleus of people to want to make that change. So it's a very complex problem. And uh, I think if as our listeners have uh, heard tonight, there isn't necessarily one right solution. So there's no magic wand that you wave to either change or uh, extend that culture. 
So it's a, it's a complex question that I think we'll always probably have worked on and will continue to work on into the future. And uh, I just want to encourage everybody to don't give up. Be that catalyst for change that uh, some of us talked about. So let me start with Bill. While we've been on this podcast, for many of you guys that don't know, as we are recording this tonight, uh, here in Oklahoma and Texas, we are going through an unprecedented snowstorm that it's like once in a lifetime down here and people are freaking out. While we were sitting here recording this podcast, I just got a text message from the worshipful master of my Texas lodge who asked me, since I'm the webmaster, internet guy, PR guy, whatever you want to call me, to send out a message on our social media to the members of the lodge saying that they're gathering food and supplies and heaters and such things that if anybody in the lodge is needed or knows anybody that's needed to contact them they've got some of the brethren with four-wheel drives is going to come out and get you these get you these supplies in case you need them well brethren i don't know about you but to me that speaks a lot about a culture of a lodge and if your lodge isn't doing things like that that's the kind of thing that keeps your lodge going no matter who it is, the age of the lodge, the people who make up the lodge, if your lodge isn't caring for each other, then it should be. And that's the kind of thing that will keep your lodge together. And that's what I encourage everybody to do, is to fulfill your obligation and to take care of one and each other. And if we were all to do that, we wouldn't have a numbers problem in Freemasonry. The only problem we'd have is spending enough time to get everyone in degree work to get them into, into our lodges. I love going... I love going after Bill because he beautifully summarizes. It's like, he's got my notes. <laughs> but yes, uh, completely. A, a lodge is not a building. It's the brothers who are comprised the membership. That is what a lodge is. And I think sometimes we forget that, that it's not the suits or the tuxedos that we wear to our events. It's not the fancy dinners or plates. Uh, it's not the toasts. It's not the charity groups. It's not the uh, social events. It is the brothers that make up that lodge. With that, there, we all know that there's change that comes in our lives that can change the culture of our lodge. Uh, a brother who has to leave for relocating for his job or has children isn't able to attend. Hey, a pandemic that shuts things down and our older members don't feel safe even coming to lodge buildings because of, of their own health safety. These are all things that can change a lodge. But I think the most important thing that can affect a lodge culture is you, the brother who's listening to this podcast right now. And if you have a thought or you have an idea, it's important for you to understand this. In Masonry, every opinion counts, every brother brother matters, and every brother has a say in what they want to do for the lot. And whether it's something radically innovative or just a simple small thing that you want to do, either in your lodge as part of the building, as part of the meetings, or outside of it as part of the community or just the brotherhood of your lodge, you should do it. You should talk to the people that you believe would want to be a part of it and make that change. And that's how bigger change happens, as Darren has also mentioned, is by taking those smaller steps. The other great thing about culture is that we also get a chance to control it. So for those of us that are uh, master masons, think about that when we go through the process of bringing interested gentlemen, prospects, candidates, whatever you might call it, into the lodge. We want to make sure that we're not just handing out our petitions to a guy on the first date, so to speak. That we want to be selective to make sure that we are bringing the right quality and caliber 
personality and characteristics and uh, character per se that's going to work with the rest of what the group has. And the other key thing is, is if we're aware of things that are missing within our lodge, well, that's a good opportunity too to be open to those doors when those brothers or soon to be brothers present themselves. Yeah, all great thoughts. And uh, this is a fascinating topic because I think it really goes to the core of who we are and what we are and uh, and what we uh, potentially could be with just a little bit more effort. I just want to thank you, Greg, Bill, and Mike for this stimulating conversation. And I want to thank our listeners. I hope that you're getting value out of what we're doing. And I hope that you enjoyed this episode of Meet, Act, and Part. And we will talk to you next time. Thank you. Listening to Meet, Act, and Part. For more information about our show, visit our website at www.meetactandpart.com. While there, please consider supporting the show by sponsoring us on Patreon. Until we meet again, may we meet Patreon.